0: This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail, or you can find me at Facebook at either Mormon Awakenings or Jack Manique. Welcome back. It's gotten quite dark where I live. We've, we've entered the season of darkness here in New England. It gets dark around 410, 415. It's 435 now, and it's pitch black outside. Do not move to New England. And if you do move in May or June, when it's awesome, don't move in November or December or you will really regret your decision. You'll question your own sanity. Why did I move to this dark, dismal, horrible place? Thankfully, the darkness doesn't last that long. I mean, it's really bad in late November, and December, January. But then in February, the days start to get a little longer by March, April, the days are starting to feel like they're normal length again. Then the leaves come out, the tulips come out of the ground, the grass turns green again and starts to heat up a little bit, and, and then the summers, well, the springs and the summers and the falls here are, are incredible. It almost makes up for the three months of miserable darkness that we experience every year. If I were recording this in May or June, I would say the spring, the summer, and the fall does, in fact, make up for the darkness and the cold and the sleet and the grimness of winter. But it's not May. It's not June. It's December. And around here, everyone's wondering, like I am right now, if it's really worth it. Is it really worth living here through all this dark, dismal, cold? Ugh? Everyone goes through this every winter around here. There's a certain rhythm to it. First couple times through it is kind of hard, but after a few years, you get used to it and you know it's coming, and most importantly, you know it's going to end. It's nice to know when you're in the middle of the darkness, it's nice to know that it's going to end. Luckily, here in New England, we have a good idea of when it's going to end. It's going to end around March, April, sometime around then. be a little harder, of course, if every year were different, you know, if if some years... The darkness lasted until June or July, or maybe there's a whole year of darkness, or maybe a couple, you know, what if you never knew when the darkness was going to end, and it was arbitrary year after year after year, that well, that would be tough. Thankfully, people like Galileo and the Mayans and, you know, the Romans, they started watching the sky and started noticing these patterns, and we can use their wonderful inventions, the calendar, and predict when the darkness is going to end, when spring is going to come, when we ought to plant. When summer's going to get here and we can head to the beach. I'm sure that's what the Mayans and Galileo and the Romans were all concerned about when they could head to the beach. Much of life, of course, is not as predictable as the lunar and the solar calendars, and much of life is not as repetitive either. I saw a photograph of myself the other day. It was taken 20 years ago. You could recognize that it was me, but I don't look like that anymore. That was a snapshot in time. That moment, 20 years ago, on that day, that's what I looked like. And since that time, there have been lots of cycles and periods of light and periods of darkness, and none of it, in hindsight, proved to be at all predictable. So, whereas in December in New England, you can look forward to February and March and April when it's going to get light again, and you can get through the moment of darkness called winter by projecting forward to spring and summer and you know it's coming you know unlike that when you're going through a personal period of darkness you're not exactly sure when it's going to end and you're not exactly sure when it does end what it's going to be like it being life you don't know if the darkness is going to last for a season or a couple seasons or a couple years. And, and then when the darkness is gone, you don't know what the world's going to look like. You don't know if you ought to plant or go to the beach. And then when the darkness finally does end and you're in the light, you start to get scared. I hope the light doesn't end and darkness comes again because how long is it going to last next time? Oh, no. Why did I move to New England? I should have stayed in Southern California. You learn... Over time, I think that looking forward to the end of the darkness and being terrified about the end of the light is no way to deal with the vagaries of life. Merely looking forward to the inevitable spring like you do during December in New England is not an effective way of dealing with the cycles, the trials, the periods of life. For the simple reason that you never know when... Everything's going to change again. I stumbled onto an interesting method during one of the dark periods of my life a method of coping. When things got really heavy and I got really sad because of some unfortunate events which were out of my control, inflicted upon me because of the decisions of others. When I found myself lamenting my state, feeling quite badly about it. When I found myself quite sad and powerless. I'd think, well, I'm going to try to not worry or think about my problems, my darkness, for 30 whole minutes. And if I don't feel better at the end of the 30-minute period, well, perhaps I'll take more drastic action. But I thought, you know, if I can get through 30 minutes, maybe this burden that is weighing me down will dissipate somehow. So I would do that. I would try to get through the next Thirty minutes of life. You've heard the old expression, live life day by day. It's kinda like that. Except it was live life thirty minutes at a time. Just focus on the next thirty minutes. You can get through Jack the next thirty minutes. So I would do that. I'd set my watch, the timer on my Timex Iron Man watch, to thirty minutes, I push the start button and then I'd just sort of give myself a break. Thirty minutes later, my watch would beep. And I found I usually felt a little better than I did at the start of the 30 minutes. Sometimes I felt about the same, but I never felt worse. If I felt about the same, I'd do it another 30 minutes. I'd push the start button again and try to forget about things for 30 more minutes. The goal was just to live life in 30-minute chunks. This proved to be a highly effective strategy for me. It became so effective that I began to share it with other people. In my ward, there's a BYU-Idaho's Pathways program. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but it basically prepares people in the stake, in my stake here in New England, who do not have college degrees. It prepares them to be admitted to BYU-Idaho, either on campus in Idaho or to their online program. And the program is called Pathways. It's a good program. It's a positive program. I participated in teaching a class for that program. For a couple of years. One of the Pathways students was a woman I know in my ward. She was overwhelmed with life. Her husband, who was 20 years older than she was, had been struggling for years to find consistent employment. She had a newly born daughter, which took up her time and also made her worry about that daughter's future. She decided she needed to get educated, so she attended the Pathways program. To prepare to enter BYU-Idaho as an adult and get a college degree, she was so proud of herself because no one in her family had ever attended college. So she came every Wednesday night to the Pathways program, and week after week, I would see the strain of life in her face. She always tried to smile, but she was racked with worry. And so one night I said to her, you know, I found when I'm really down and... You know, really wanted to end that if I break life up into 30 minute increments, all I need to do is live another 30 minutes. That I can always kind of live another 30 minutes. And if I just live life in 30 minute increments and didn't think past the 30 minute block that I was currently living, that helped dispel a lot of my worries. I told this to her. She laughed. She said, I live in five-minute increments. So I left back and I thought, yeah, that's, that's pretty. That's effective. Five minutes is even better. A few months after this conversation with this woman, I had an almost transcendent experience. I was feeling burdened by something out of my control, something that was weighing me down. Conflated it with worries about work, financial situation, worries about family. Suddenly found myself in a bit of a spiral and I set my watch to five minutes. And at the end of that five minutes, I went to set it again and suddenly I had this experience where the beginning of the five minutes and the end of the five minutes sort of merged into one moment, the now, and time didn't exist for me anymore. At least that's what it felt like for this particular moment. I had this experience where there was no past, there was no future, there was only now. There were no problems, there was only Now, and then I realized something, all my worries about the future, all my burdens that I was carrying from the past did not exist in the moment I was, and it was transcendent. It's difficult to describe, but the things that were really upsetting me were either events in the past or my projections and my worries about those projections into the future, none of which were real at the moment that I was in. And it was transcendent, it was kind of weird. I've had spiritual experiences in the past. I've had prayers answered unequivocally. I've participated in what I believe to be miraculous healings. I believe strongly in powers from beyond assisting us in this realm. And this experience was part of that education. A sudden transcendent understanding of the now. Of this moment. An understanding of what exists in this moment, and none of my projections and forecasts that my subconscious were making about the future were real, and none of the events and the sufferings and the mistreatments that I experienced in the past were happening now either. My judgments, my anger, my concerns about those past mistreatments did afflict me, but those things were productions of my mind, not actually happening, not real prior to this transcendent experience, I had been reading a book called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, a book I've referenced before. I started timing segments in my life as a coping mechanism long before I learned about Eckhart Tolle. And I had shrunk the segments that I timed that I was breaking life into into smaller and smaller pieces before I learned about Eckhart Tolle. But I had this transcendent experience with the now after reading Eckhart Tolle. I'm not quite sure I could have transitioned from 30-minute blocks to 15-minute blocks to five-minute blocks to now without that final little push by Eckhart Tolle. And this final little push represented a massive revelation for me. It gave me a new tool to cope, to deal, to accept whatever it is about life that enabled me to be more peaceful now instead of constantly looking forward to the brighter days of spring and summer or constantly looking back to the warmer, brighter days of fall when I was in the dark, cold winter periods of life. And we all have what amounts to winter in New England in our lives. Except during the winter of our lives, unlike winter in New England, we don't know when the darkness and the cold is going to end. Worse, those around us seem to be frolicking in the, in the midst of blooming spring or glorious summer. So we're suffering through the dark, cold New England winter alone next to people who you know are getting ready to go to the beach. Not looking forward to the end of it, paradoxically freed me from all the pain of the darkness. that's weird. Unexpected, for sure, but liberating. Jesus talked about this, of course. He said, take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow will take care of itself. I'm paraphrasing slightly, but that's basically the message. Live today, live now. When tomorrow comes, handle tomorrow. That counsel by Jesus, of course, makes no sense. Unless there's some being bigger, greater, stronger, more loving than we are looking out for us. A stronger force out there, even Eckhart Tolle, who's new agey, not Christian, new agey, not LDS, even he preaches that there's a strong force guiding us. Let it guide you. In this sense, darkness has its own purposes, doesn't it? Well, that's comforting. Because then when you're in the middle of it, you know there's a purpose for it. You may not know what it's going to end. You may not even know what it's teaching you. You probably won't without hindsight. But you can take comfort in the fact that the darkness, the cold, the winter is teaching you something. And that something is that there's a bigger, stronger being out there kind of organizing things. People don't want to believe this. This being that someone else might be in charge of everything. Because if you believe that, the most sensible thing to do is let go. And letting go is quite hard for people. Surrendering to the darkness is hard. Living in the now and not looking forward to the end of winter is hard, especially when it's cold. But for some reason, that's a hard thing to do. That's why I'm grateful for Timex Iron Man watches. Because when I forget, I can always go back to 30 minutes Maybe 15 and maybe 5 and eventually work my way back to the now with confidence that I have all I need to deal with what's happening this moment and whatever's going to happen in an hour or six hours or a week or two or five years, when I get to that now, I'll be able to deal with the things in that now. But I don't need to deal with all those things in this now because those are Part of another, I just have to deal with this moment. You know, it gets very weird. You start to feel like you're in a Star Trek episode or a Twilight Zone episode or something. But it's liberating. We are a people, we the LDS, we are people who love to adhere to things. It comforts us, gives us a sense of control. Pay your tithing, do your home teaching, write in your journal, keep the word of wisdom. Love your neighbor. Everything's going to work out just fine. It's hard to imagine how adhering to anything like this is actually the cause of the type of effects that we really want. Yet we do it, we adhere, and the fruits thereof come cascading down. I've developed my own relatively subversive theory about why we're asked to adhere. Part of it, I believe, is to distract us from worries about the future, to liberate us from gripes about the past, and to focus our attention on the now. And if you just do what you're supposed to now, deal with the now, everything tomorrow, next week, five years from now, will be just fine. We also learn through adherence that what is wonderful, what we think of as blessings, come from beyond. That's the second lesson, I think, that the doctrine of adherence is teaching us. There's a God, there's a being, there's a force, whatever it is, there's something beyond you watching out for you, taking care of you, and that's something made you. And he's smarter, wiser, stronger, more loving than you are, and you can just surrender and relax and deal with the moment. Of course, there are limits to the doctrine of adherence, because no matter how much you adhere, as Job taught us, eventually, light will leave your life for a period things will not go to plan, all of the causes that you think you're bringing about through your adherence produce none of the desired effects. Well, that's weird, and you don't like that, nobody likes that, and well, you know, suddenly it's winter in New England, and you're wondering if the period of darkness is ever going to end, and if the subsequent period of light, when it returns, is going to make it all worth it. That's a challenge indeed, a confusing challenge for sure. Yet, the book of Job was written for a reason, and it was to address this very thing, a phenomenon experienced throughout history of doing everything right, and winter still comes. Except when these winters come, you have no idea when they're going to end. There's no calendar around that predicts the end of your Job-like experiences, And so just sitting there, stewing, holding your breath, looking forward to the predictable, inevitable end of the darkness is a poor coping strategy. It's better to draw the future and the past, one in each hand like you would a set of curtains and yank them close together to the now and just see what there is to see, experience what there is to experience. If you do that, particularly during times of darkness, you notice that there's something neat about the darkness. There's something cool about floating. There's something comforting about not knowing what's going to happen next because if that happens long enough, you realize you don't need to worry about it. You don't need to think about it. You don't need to plan for it. That relieves a burden paradoxically. The darkness in a weird way frees us from our concerns, from our sense of control from our being in charge of all the causes. Our devotion to adherence then takes on new meaning. We do things that are right, charitable, kind, good, because they're right, charitable, kind, and good. And whether the sun is shining or whether it's dark as midnight, we realize we like doing things that are kind, charitable, and good. We stop seeing adherence, as a way of controlling the universe and start to see it as guidelines or a summary of what is positive. When adherence takes on this meaning and this purpose, all that superficial and superfluous falls away at the same time. We stop looking at adherence as a way of performing magic and start to look at it as Good guidelines for a good, clean, charitable life. When we realize, too, that God's letting what is happening to us happen because he loves us, we start to take a little bit more ownership about what we will be adhering to and what is not that important. These are unexpected freedoms. Unexpected liberation that comes through darkness. And when the light returns, as it always does, eventually we find we're the same but different. And not just different, but better. When we accept the darkness as out of our control, that's when it can do its magic. I had an interesting experience a couple years ago. I went to visit my brother. And Sunday came, so we attended his ward. And someone in the ward got up and gave a very long, I would say pretty orthodox, Talk that touched on a lot of themes that we hear inside our churches. The speaker talked about a certain result that he and his wife really wanted. I can't remember the details of what this result was, what this end was that they really desired. But they decided in order to bring about this result, they were going to double down on obedience, on adherence. Underlying all this was a belief that through adherence, obedience they would be blessed with this result that they desire. So they did that. They served extra hard in the church. They went to the temple every month, said morning and evening prayers, devoted more time to scripture study, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've all heard this type of thing before. The desired result did not come. So they decided to up the ante. They were going to go to the temple once a week, pray even more, serve more, pay more tithing or a higher percentage or give more to the you know, perpetual education fund or whatever it was. They went through all these things, this guy, all the things that he was gonna do to bring about the result. At the end of the talk, the man who was giving the talk said, well, the, the desired result has not come yet, but we know through our adherence that it will, and we have faith. Amen. After church, I was riding in the car with my brother. And we chatted about this talk, We both looked at each other and said, boy, that has just not been our experience at all in life. I don't mean to pick on this guy who gave the talk. I mean, I'm sure he was sincere and well-meaning and, you know, he was clearly obedient and trying to do what was right. But my experience and my brother's experience were that one of the things we're supposed to learn in life is to let go and not try to control the universe and God through our performance, our outward performances. Because that is the same thing as holding your breath in December, putting your head down, telling yourself how terrible something is, but since you have a calendar and you can predict when it's going to end, you just need to hold your breath and endure until light comes again in February, March, and that in an unpredictable world, a world run by a being far superior, smarter, more intelligent more loving than you, that method kinda misses the point. It sort of supposes that we're in charge. It sort of presupposes that we do certain things to bring about stuff that we want. Presupposes that goodness, charity, kindness, righteousness are not ends in and of themselves, but tools to get what we really want, which may or may not be charitable, good, or right. At some point, we all learn this lesson, often through a period of darkness, when the only way to get through it is to just focus on now, this second, this moment, to stop trying to control it, but to accept it and to experience it. One of the most beautiful things that Joseph Smith ever wrote is section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants. He had been stuck in Liberty Jail during the winter, literally, so it was cold. The ceiling of the jail was not high enough to allow any of the men to stand up straight. They were stuck there. It must have been terrible. Joseph cried out and said, hey, this, you know, this stinks. I'd like to get out of here. If you could let me know when I'll be getting out of here, that's even better. Then I can sort of hold my breath and keep my head down and keep score on the wall, you know, and just count down and and wait and endure. I can do that. And the answer he got back was, you know, all this is for your experience. We're never told exactly what it was about the experience at Liberty Jail that was so good for Joseph. That was a personal matter, something probably only Joseph Smith himself could really appreciate. But there was something about that experience that gave him perspective, strength, insight, made him a better person. And as much as Joseph was looking forward to the end of it while he was in the middle of it, God basically said, this is for your experience. I'm going to extrapolate one step further and say that the implication as well is just focus on what's happening now with your experience. Take no thought for tomorrow, as Jesus taught, tomorrow will take care of itself. It's hard to do this. It's hard to quiet one's mind. It's hard to focus on the now. It requires letting go and surrender. Things that are related, yet at the same time seem to contradict our love inside our community of the doctrine of adherence, which I think we misunderstand to be a doctrine of control. But if Joseph's experience in Liberty Jail, or Christ's experience on the cross, or Job's experience after his family and all of his herds were destroyed, what all those experiences and stories teach us is that we are really not in control. So have a little faith, focus on this moment, and paradoxically, that will end your pain faster than the elimination of darkness will. Well, I've gone on far too long. Hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or Facebook me at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.